There are only three rules. Live on stage, 10 minutes long, and it must be true. Welcome to Long Story Short. Every two weeks, we bring you bare bones, live storytelling from professional writers, performers, and people with absolutely no public speaking experience at all. The stories are personal and off the cuff. It's live storytelling at its best. When people talk about wishing they were young again, I cringe. I don't know what you were like in your teens or your 20s, but I constantly felt like I had no idea what I was doing. Sure, it'd be nice to look younger, but I am much happier with a lifestyle that has far fewer bad decisions in it. Sure, it's fun, but nostalgia for simpler times can sometimes erase how freaking awkward it can be. And sometimes how close we come to really messing things up for good. The two stories on this episode do a great job of capturing that insecurity and uncertainty that comes with being young. Dylan Hay does a great job of touching on the long-term effects of youthful indiscretions. In this story from the September 2019 show, Breaking All the Rules. Dylan is an artist and currently the art director for Pete and Jerry's Eggs in northern New England. I loved the honesty and vulnerability of this story, and hope you do too. Here's Dylan Hay. By the time, can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, By the time I was 18 years old, I had been arrested 20 times. Okay. Okay. The first through the 19th times uh, were hilarious. The 21st and 22nd were not so funny. Um, I was kind of a sad and lonely kid. Um, my, I didn't meet my father until I was six, um, and I didn't have much of a relationship with him uh, before he passed away in my early 20s. My mom was a single mom, wonderful lady, but she worked two jobs and she put herself through college and got a bachelor's and master's degree with two kids. Um, So I spent a lot of time alone. Um, Some kids retreat into quietness, shyness. Um, I did the opposite. I acted out in every way imaginable. In elementary and middle school, I disrupted class. I challenged teachers whenever I could. Um, In high school, I started getting in fistfights. I would drive to New York City or New Jersey without telling my family to go see bands. Um, And when I was 17, I got arrested for the first time, uh, stealing gas to drive to New Jersey to see a girl that I thought was cute. Um, It's not to say I don't love my family, they're they're amazing, but um, this is how I reacted to being left alone a lot of the time. Um, And then I got arrested uh, 18 more times, and I thought it was funny. I would get, typically I'd get arrested with friends, we'd be out, I'd get thrown in handcuffs, I was cultivating this like cool 
tough guy persona. Um, you know, I, I enjoyed seeming blasé about getting hauled off to jail. Um, and the same thing would happen every single time. I'd get thrown in handcuffs in front of my friends, look cool. I'd go to a police station, usually in rural New Hampshire. Um, I'd get processed, uh, released on personal recognizance. Uh, I would spend $20. I'm sure that fee has gone up since then, but I'd spend 20 bucks. I'd get released to the same group of friends that thought I was cool two hours earlier. They'd think I was cooler. We would all laugh about it. Um, I would be mortified today to go through that same experience, but at the time, I didn't think much of it. Um, and I honestly never thought that that process was gonna end. Um, the 21st time I was arrested went a little differently. Um, I was arrested in Manchester with some friends, thought I was cool, got handcuffed, got taken to a police station. Um, this time they did not release me on $20 personal recognizance. Um, they wanted $500. I didn't have $500 because I was kind of a shitty little 17-year-old. Um, and I spent some time at the Hillsborough County Correctional Facility um, paying off um, my fine on time earned. And it scared me to death. Um, I tried to act tough in the holding cell, but um, when I got my phone call, I called my mom and I just wept. And uh, she wouldn't or couldn't bail me out. Um, so I, I spent some time in jail and uh, it was a waking nightmare that made me um, acutely aware that I never wanted to do it again. And I certainly never wanted to experience the nightmare that was prison. Um, so the 22nd time I was arrested is what I'd like to talk about tonight. Um, <laughs> uh, it was a day that, that completely altered the course of my life. Um, I was driving through a small town in central New Hampshire with a friend. Um, who was a charming drug dealer, um, and he, he had a 1993 white convertible BMW 3 Series. So picture like two skinny suburban white kids from New Hampshire driving through some back streets, listening to hip hop, looking like we were like mid-90s Miami drug lords. Um, I was driving. I did not have a license. It had been revoked um, after one of my previous arrests. Um, and I was pretty sure that I had a warrant out for, uh, for my arrest at that time. But still I was driving because nothing ever stuck to me and I was cool getting trouble guy. Um, so we're driving through this town. Um, blue lights go up behind us. A police officer pulls us off, pulls us over. Um, I don't panic because I have a plan. I have a contingency plan for, for this exact situation. Um, I had made an agreement with a, a close friend from high school um, who did not have a record, um, who was about the same height and build as me, um, that if I was ever pulled over or if I ever got in trouble, as long as I paid the fine or ticket I received, I could use his identity. Foolproof. Um, so the cop pulls us over. Oh, we were shirtless driving this convertible. <laughs> For like no good reason. So I th we throw our shirts back on. I don't think my friend in the car knew that I didn't have a license or that I was at large. Um, so I threw my shirt on. I took my ID out, 
threw it underneath the seat, and we're cool. Um, cop comes up to the car. It's a very typical traffic stop, uh, license and registration. I say, I'm so, and I knew how to turn it on too. I, um, I had a scholarship to a private school, so I was super good at schmoozing with anyone. Um, so I'm so sorry I don't have my license, but my name is my name is Dylan. It's like my name is James. Um, here's my address um, and the registration. So he's like, okay, thanks. He goes back to his car. I'm like feeling pretty cool. Um, I think everything's fine. We're just hanging out. He comes back to the car, um, and you know, he said, uh, he's like, what's your name again? I said James so and so. He's like, you sure? Yeah, yeah, that's my name, man. Um, you sure? You sure you're James? Yep, positive. Um, then he asked me to step out of the car. Heart sinks a little bit. Um, asked me a couple more times. Your name James? Yep. Are you sure? Yep. Um, I'm starting to get like more and more tense, and like a little bit incensed because I've convinced myself that I am James at this point. <laughs> um, so he has me go sit on the curb behind the car. And all I can think is, he is going to look in the car, he's going to find my ID, he's going to find out who I am, and I'm just like running it down in my head. I'm going to get arrested, I'm going to go to jail. I don't know what's going to happen after that, but I, I don't want to go to jail. It was my absolute nightmare. Um, so he's, he does a quick flip of the car, uh, comes back around, asks me to stand up. I stand up. Um, it occurs to me how large this man is. He's like kind of a behemoth. Um, so heart sinks a little bit more. Um, I start getting kind of tense. He asks me again, what's your name? James, are you sure? Yes. Um, he asks me a few more questions. He asks me what my address is again. I tell him, um, what's your mom's name? I tell him, what's your dad's name? I tell him, I have all this stuff memorized because this is the plan, like the plan can't go wrong. This is a foolproof plan that two 18-year-olds came up with. It's perfect. Um, I should also mention that uh, the friend whose identity I used, his father was my high school English teacher. So extra foolproof. Um, so I, I'm like starting to feel personally offended that this guy does not believe that I'm who I say I am. And he says, really? Yeah, that's my name, man. Like, this is who I am, why won't you believe me? And he says, I, I think your name's Dylan. And I just immediately, my guts start churning and my heart drops and I just think like, shit. But I'm like, no, it's not. I'm James. Um, and he's like, are you positive? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm, like, I'm swearing up and down. I'm like, that's who I am. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And he goes, I know that you're Dylan. And the moment he said that, I don't know what happened, but out of either like sheer stupidity or blind fear, I did the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. I grabbed this large man as a child by the bulletproof vest and like a mother lifting a car off their child, I picked him up and slammed him on the ground. And I turned and I just started running as fast as I could. No plan, I'd never done anything like that before. I'd gotten in a lot of trouble, but I'd never, this was new for me. I just started running as fast as I could in this little town and somehow, like I hit him hard. It, 
sounded like a big bag of sand dropping to the floor from 10 feet up. He got up and in what seemed like two seconds caught up to me, this like middle-aged cheetah. <laughs> and he, do you know, I'm like not a big football guy, but I think like everyone else, I've seen those bad hits where someone gets hit in the middle of the back and it just looks painful. He hit me hard. And I went to the pavement, hands down, just scraped, thrashed. And I fought him. I fought him as hard as I could. I just resisted this like fight, flight, whatever else was just like raging through my brain. And uh, I, I fought him, I resisted. He finally arrested me, um, got the cuffs on me, got me in the back of his car. I don't remember if he read me my rights. I'm sure that he did, but it felt like just silence and silence on the way to the station. We got to the station, he started processing me. Um, it was a smaller station and it was a weekend, so it was just him in the station, a dispatcher, me. The cell was near his desk. Um, so I'm at the station, it feels like an absolute eternity that no one is talking and my mind is just, I'm racing, like, you know, I'm going to prison. I just assaulted a police officer. This is the end of my life. Um, he fingerprints me and when he fingerprints me, I have cuts all over my hands from hitting the pavement so hard and I winced at the pain and the first thing he says to me, he holds up his hand and he's missing some fingers, which I hadn't noticed. And he made a joke, he was just like, he's like, oh, that hurts, this hurt a lot more. And I laughed at him. Um, and I don't know if it was him like opening a door uh, for a kid or if he was demonstrating that he was tougher than me given that we had just been on the ground fighting each other. Um, but we started this conversation that meandered for three or four hours, I think. Um, we were waiting for someone to come and set bail like I said, it was a weekend and it was a small town. Um, and we just talked and talked and talked. I asked him how he lost his fingers. I asked him about his family and his kids. He asked me about school. He asked me about my family. Um, and it felt, um, in retrospect, not like I was talking to a friend or a family member, but it felt a lot to me like talking to my pediatrician when I was a kid. Um, someone that you trust and like, but that isn't you know, part of your family or, or someone you really know. Um, and I think we both saw the humanity in each other. Uh, but then the, bail per the person that sets bail sets up, uh, showed up and they start talking and I find out I'm gonna be charged with aggravated assault. There isn't a specific crime in New Hampshire for assaulting a police officer. Um, typically you get charged with aggravated assault and when you go to trial or go to court if you're pleading guilty, um, the fact that you assaulted a public official is brought up and that sentence can be three years or five years or 10 years. And they wanted to set bail at $10,000. Um, and I, that it might, have well, it might as well have been $10 million. I think I had 50 bucks in the bank. Uh, my mom wasn't gonna help me. I didn't have any friends that had any money. And I just started running it down in my head. And I thought my life was completely over and uh, I wouldn't be able to salvage it in any way that I could imagine in my head. Um, so I just, I'm like crying. Uh, I just think this is it. Um, and a lot of my friends from that part of my life went to prison and they have not been the same. So uh, I'm waiting, they're processing. And there's a point where the, the bail person and the cop step into the next room where the dispatcher is and I think it's just part of the process. Um, they're gone for maybe five or 10 minutes um, and I'm just alone, it feels like an eternity. I'm just, I can't explain to you what that feels like. Um, they come back in and the 
cop comes up to the cell and he explains to me that he's convinced the powers that be, the guy, uh, that uh, they should drop my charge from a felony um, down to a misdemeanor of disobeying a police officer. Um, and I don't think I said anything, I don't think I could muster anything. Um, but the course of my life was changed that night and I have not gotten a speeding ticket or jaywalked. Um, I was an absolute teetotaler for a few years. I got in a vicious fight with a friend who wanted to put beer in my trunk to go to a party. Um, this man really changed my life and um, he, he did it in a way that I wasn't capable of doing at the time. Um, sometimes a kid just needs permission to be good, to be good. Thanks. Plant is one of the first storytellers to do Long Story Short, and man, am I glad that she did. Her stories are hilarious and brutally honest. I really admire how she turns her laser-sharp self-awareness into comedy, making awkward moments seem really endearing. If you've ever felt awkward or nerdy in your life at all, this story is for you. Plus, a special shout-out to all my fellow band nerds from the 90s out there. You're going to love this one. Here's Aaron LaPlante. Hello. I'm super nervous. <laughs> Just so you guys know, can you guys give me, like, a clap or something? <laughs> Um, okay. Um, in my, the theme is past lives. You guys know this. In my past life, I was... Um, clumsy and prone to mishaps and just sort of surrounded by chaos on a regular basis. Um, <laughs> when I was uh, in sixth grade, um, I grew up in a really small town, Berlin, New Hampshire, which for those of you who don't know is like Canada. Um, <laughs> um, so I, had a, I went to a really small middle school and uh, on one side of the school there was a fifth and sixth grade and on the other side was a seventh and eighth grade. And it was connected by uh, our gym. And um, in fifth and sixth grade, we were in the world of like having one teacher all day. And the seventh and eighth graders had, you know, like periods where they switched every class. It was fancy to us fifth and sixth graders. And they, they were cooler in general. They had better clothes than we did. And they were in real relationships. Um, so one day my friend Crystal and I were walking from the fifth and sixth grade side to the seventh and eighth grade side, and when you came into the gym, uh, at the top of the stairs, there were probably like 15 or 20 stairs, we were walking in, and the, the eighth grade boys were at the end of one of their periods, and they were standing at the bottom of the stairs, and they were all really good looking, you know, like, Brad Pitt, George Clooney type men. At the time, I was probably thinking like Jordan Knight or Kirk Cameron, but really, really good looking boys. So, and I remember thinking like, I had to look good, you know, walking down the stairs. So I took the first step and then I turned to Crystal to talk to her just because I thought that would make me look cooler. And I skipped a step <laughs> and my foot landed on the next step down and then my body started landing on the next step and then I just kind of somersaulted down the steps and I landed in a heap at the bottom at the feet of all the really hot eighth grade boys 
and if anybody had missed it, Miss um, Lawton, the gym teacher who was clear across the way, was running, <laughs> being like, are you okay, Erin? So, um, Sometimes when I think about my earliest memory, that is what I think about. Not because it was my earliest memory, I was in sixth grade, but um, it was the first time I remember being just completely mortified. Um, and it just continued when I was, um, <laughs> when I was 11, I started my period and um, I only knew that because I was wearing white shorts in the middle of a water fight with the boys <laughs> and um, one of them asked why my shorts were pink um, and when I was 13 the junior high principal came to the door of our class and he held up this really nice suede coat and hanging out of it was a maxi pad <laughs> with wings <laughs> and I couldn't crouch down fast enough before Matt Watson pointed out that it was mine um, and when I was 14, my parents decided to move us actually down here to Dover, New Hampshire. And uh, moving from Berlin to Dover uh, may as well be moving from Berlin to Manhattan. It was a huge culture shock for me. Um, my first day of school, and you know, your first day of school, you wear your like solid outfit. I was wearing um, a, an off-white leotard. The ones that like buttoned <laughs> and light green jeans and a vest with like a country scene on it. <laughs> it had like a fence and then some birds were flying and then these mini cowboy boots and I thought I looked fantastic. <laughs> and I bought the whole thing for like eleven fifty at Macy's, which is something I told anyone who would listen. Um, so, you know, not totally cool. And um, in Berlin, I was in band. I've always been involved in music. And in Berlin, band was just like, you were in band. It was no big deal. And in Dover, forgive me, George, uh, band, my drum instructor is here tonight. Um, <laughs> band was not cool. It was like instantly geek status. We had those, it was marching bands. So you had those wool uniforms and like the hats with the feather and um, and I played flute in Berlin, and you couldn't play flute in marching band, you had to play piccolo, so, and I hated piccolo. So, already being uncool, I decided to switch to bass drum. <laughs> and in case anyone is unclear, that does not instantly shoot you to prom queen status. <laughs> and, <laughs> and when you're already sort of clumsy, and you have to walk with a bass drum in marching band, like, it, I have no idea what I was thinking. Um, and like the sort of cliche geek, I had a crush on one of the football players, which is so ridiculous. And um, he's finishing up a sentence at the Dover prison. <laughs> <laughs> True story. So it's okay, it worked out. But um, at the time, I would have died if he talked to me. I would have died if he would have acknowledged my existence at all. So we used to practice in the parking lot across from the high school and we had to roll stuff. I'm not gonna roll stuff for you guys, but um, I wasn't very good at it. So uh, the only time my boyfriend, which is what I called him in my head, um, <laughs> acknowledged my status is when I was like roll stepping and he was driving by with a bunch of the football players at the same moment that I tripped over my bass drum and landed on it and then rolled to the side. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
And he beeped the horn and yelled out, all right, we'll play it. So not good. Um, and, and, you know, it just sort of continued throughout my adult life. One time I was at a gas station in Dover, and I was cleaning out my car with one of those vacuums, and my dress got caught in the vacuum. So my ass was clear sight for everyone at the mobile on the run, and the employees had to come out and turn it off for me because I couldn't get it out. So... <laughs> I'm, I, and there's so many more. I'm not going to tell you more, but there's so many more. Um, so each time one of these stories happened, it kind of built into this reputation that I created for myself. Because I tell these stories all the time. My friends that are here know all of the stories I just told you. And it just kind of morphed into my reputation for being a little chaotic. To the point that one time one of my friends was telling one of her friends, who to this day I have not met, about one of these stories, and in response, this random woman rolled her eyes and was like, typical Aaron. <laughs> so we joked about it so much. Each time something like this would happen, my friends and I would be like, typical Aaron, you know me. And I think that's the kind of, that's the woman I stuck to. And one of my friends, continually, every time I would tell her this, a story, she'd say, you have to write it down. Like, you can't keep telling these stories. They're good stories. you got to write them down. To the point that, I mean, she didn't let up on me. She still has not let up on me. Um, so I started writing a blog, and I call it Typical Erin. And um, in the beginning, it became somewhere that, like, I started to do it because I wanted to make people laugh. I wanted to make my five to seven friends laugh. And um, it became this kind of therapeutic way for me to, to deal with these stories. Um, but then the more I wrote... I realized I had wrote about all the embarrassing things. There's a lot of embarrassing things. Like, there's 300 stories on my blog that are all just that content. Um, but I wrote about all of these things. And then after I was sort of writing, done writing these down, I just started writing about life in general, just what was going on in my life. And it wasn't always embarrassing, although a lot of it is or not always chaotic or not mishaps, it was just life. And it's difficult because it's all, I'm very honest. I mean, everything I just told you guys is very honest. So it's sometimes really difficult to hit publish when I'm going to write my blog um, because some of the stories are really personal. Like last week, I told this story about how my daughter reached under my pillow and found my, my vibrator. <laughs> and um, she asked if it was a wine stopper. It does not look like a wine stopper, you guys. It doesn't. Um, my poor daughter. Um, and, you know, and, and I write about yelling at the top of my lungs at that same daughter, you know, cursing her existence in the same moments that I'm, you know, picturing like I could, I would die without her. Um, and just, you know, struggles with work and fights with my parents and falling in love and breaking up 25 times in the past year. And, um, and each time I would tell one of these stories, I'd connect with someone, like whether it was one of my friends or someone that I didn't know all that well, I'd find some connection. Someone, my story would resonate with someone. And I found it so unbelievable because what I find, and you guys probably already know because you're smarter than me, but is that none of us are alone which is so powerful. Uh, I think one of the most powerful things about storytelling, just that 
no matter what, someone somewhere is going through the same thing that you're going through or someone is having the same thoughts that you are. And living in such a heavily disconnected world, I find that incredibly comforting. Um, someone has, you know, tripped down 15 stairs and landed at Ryan McKay's feet uh, in sixth grade. And, you know, someone has tripped over themselves in the middle of the city and shown their naked ass to all of Chicago. And maybe not someone here, but someone's daughter has found their vibrator. <laughs> um, but what I've also figured out through writing about these stories is that it's, um, they're, they're just moments. They're not, they don't define me. And I've let that girl, that crazy chaotic mishap, you know, totally uncool girl go um, and realize that's not who I am. It doesn't define me at all. I am, you know, I, I am all of those things. I'm imperfect, but that's not all I am. Um, it's just a story to be told. So. That's our show. I would love to have you check out our new resources on the longstoryshortpod.com website, as well as sign up for our email list. It's so not spammy. We usually send one or two emails out a month. Uh, this ha they'll have updates about shows, live shows, the podcast, as well as um, information on workshops, storytelling classes online. Um, if you want to just know what's going on in storytelling or are hoping to uh, up your storytelling game, uh, the email list is definitely going to help you out. All right. That's all we got. I'll see you in two weeks. Long Story Short is produced and hosted by Beth LaMontagne Hall. Original music by Timothy Fife, whose recordings are available on SoundCloud. A special thanks to the Long Story Short advisory board members, Tristan Law, Amy Jane Larkin, Martin Murray, Debbie Kane, and Mark Michael Adams for their support and all they do to keep this series going. The stories recorded in front of a live audience are part of Long Story Short's ongoing storytelling series, held quarterly in the 3S Art Space Theater in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Thank you to the 3S team for their production assistance, marketing support, and for making these recordings sound so good. 3S Art Space is a contemporary arts organization, venue, and gallery space dedicated to presenting bold and emerging art and entertainment. To learn more about the organization and upcoming shows, go to 3sarts.org. To learn more about Long Story Short, how to get tickets to a live performance, or to sign up to be one of the storytellers, go to longstoryshortpod.com. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at longstoryshort3s.